I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On Life Through, episode 182. My interview with Jay Kensinger about how he made the chronology protection case. This is a short film that's been on Amazon Prime for a few years, and it is an adaptation of my 1995 novelette, The Chronology Protection Case. So first you're going to hear a little prologue by me, about 10 minutes, in which I tell you how I came to write the story in the first place. And then you'll hear my interview with Jay Kensinger, in which we go into all kinds of interesting things. So here you go. The Light on Light Through podcast. So one fine day I went to a convention. I met the editor of Analog. We had a good conversation. And I smilingly said at the end of the conversation, well, listen, it was great meeting you. His name was Stan Schmidt. He's still around, no longer editor of Analog, but back then he was editor of Analog. And I said, hey, uh, I'm looking forward to sending you another story, which I'm sure you're going to turn down again but that's okay. I'm going to keep sending you stories. And he smiled back at me and said, don't be so sure that I'm going to turn it down. So sure enough, I sent him a story and rather than turning it down, he published it. That was not the chronology protection case. But the very next story that I wrote was the chronology protection case. And the reason why I wrote that story is I came across an article in a magazine about something that Stephen Hawking, how many of you know who Stephen Hawking is? Does that ring a bell? All right, good. Stephen Hawking, the now unfortunately gone to greener pastures uh, like Philip K. Dick, uh, brilliant physicist who made all kinds of breakthroughs in his understanding and therefore the human understanding of the cosmos. One of the things he came up with in the early 1990s was something he called the chronology protection conjecture. So this is real. We're not yet into science fiction. And Hawking said, you know, it's not going to be easy to create anything that can time travel because you're dealing with something It's much more profound, as I mentioned to this class uh, two weeks ago. It's one thing going from one place to another, traveling from one space to another, but we never travel through time. We never go back in time. We never jump forward in time. All we can do with time is live, and then time passes at the pace of life. So Hawking said it's going to be very difficult to time travel. But if it were possible, Hawking said, I think the universe would not permit that time travel to happen. Because if the universe allowed time travel to happen, the universe would be allowing its own unraveling. Because if everybody could travel back in the past and change something, and we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, 
that would change the future constantly. The universe would be a, ple a complete incoherent jumble. So Stephen Hawking said, I think the universe will get in the way of any time travel. And what he had in mind was the universe throwing up physical boundaries. So you find a black hole out in space, you try to travel through it to get to another time, but Hawking said the forces within the black hole will see, be so violent, it won't let the ship even get through it. Okay, so this is his conjecture in physics. But now you get another insight into authorship. In my demented mind, I said, hey, you know what? Chronology protection conjecture. If Hawking is right, that the universe will do anything it needs to do to stop time travel from happening, maybe it'll kill not only the people who are trying to time travel, but the scientists who figured out how to time travel in the first place. And that became the basis of the chronology protection case. So, again, to show you how these things work, I wrote a short story. It was about uh, 500 uh, or so, I'm sorry, it was about 5,000 or so words. I sent it to uh, Stan Schmidt. This time he wrote me back saying, hey, you know, now that you can see I'm publishing his stories, I want to tell you, I really love this story, but you're ending it too quickly. And uh, in particular, I was ending it by having Phil D'Amato, my lead character, die because the universe was preventing him from understanding how to time travel. So it was at the encouragement of Stan Schmidt that I extended the story and had uh, Phil D'Amato survive. By the way, if you haven't read the story, I'm sorry for giving that away, but hey, I told you to read the story already. Um, in any case, this proved to be a very good thing for me as a writer, because then I went on to write two more novelettes with uh, Phil D'Amato as the lead character, and then three novels. And I'm working on a fourth novel right now. So uh, I always thank Stan Schmidt for letting me... Uh, and encouraging me to extend the story and keep Phil D'Amato in play as a character. So that is, you know, the story of how I wrote the chronology protection case. Before I go on to tell you how Jay Kensinger came into this, and then we'll finish this up because Jay will tell you his own story on Thursday. Okay, so as I mentioned, the chronology protection case it didn't win any awards, but it was nominated for the Nebula Award, which is the award that the Science Fiction Writers of America gives out every year. They give an award to the best novel, they give an award to the best novella, the best novelette. By the way, just so we're clear on the terms, the Science Fiction Writers of America and most other uh, organizations and people and organizations who make this judgment will tell you that anything up to 7,500 words is a short story. 
anything from 7,500 words to 1,750 words is a novelette. And anything from 17,500 words to about 45,000 words is a novella. Sometimes that's 40,000 words. Anything longer than that is a novel. So you'll hear Jay and me talking, and, and it's, uh, it says like on the movie poster from the novelette by Paul Levinson, that is just acknowledging what the length of the story is. Anything shorter than a novel is considered to be a kind of short story, even though it gets confusing, novelette and novella, they sound like novels, but they're considered to be technically short stories. Anyway, the chronology protection case was a finalist who didn't win, but it was a finalist nominated for the best novelette of 1995. And, uh, Another science fiction writer by the name of Jack Dan, D-A-N-N, uh, he uh, was in those days, every year he had a contract with the Science Fiction Writers of America to publish an anthology of all the Nebula Award-winning short stories, novelettes, and novellas. And since there would only be one of each, and those are only three things. He had to get more to fill up the volume. He was also publishing. He was able to select the runner-ups to put into that anthology. Why is this significant? The anthology came out like in 1996 or so, 1997. One day, Jay Kensinger in 2001 was walking passed the bookshop, picked up a copy of this anthology, bought it, read my story, and at that moment decided that he wanted to make it into a movie. So that brings you right up to where we're going to pick up with Jay. And again, I might repeat a little of this on, on Thursday, but Jay will tell you, what got him to decide to make this movie, what happened with the movie, and all kinds of other exciting things. Jay Kensinger, who I have to say he's aged very well, because if you think about what Jay looks like uh, in the chronology protection case, that was... Uh, well, it was 20 years ago. Yeah. So maybe there is something to this time travel thing. <laughs> Jay maybe. He, he traveled like you know twenty years into the future just to do this video. So, no, I, I see. I, I can't do um, I can't do handstands anymore. Backwards handstands, and just <laughs> it, you realize you start getting to like you know thirty, great, forty, okay, fifty. Whoa! Then things start hurting that you've never seen, that you've never you know felt before. But you know, it's you're still having a good time. Yeah, well, think of that as like a motivation. You know, there, there are some uh, artists who think the best art comes from pain. Although personally, I never agreed with that. But there's a, there are a lot of uh, wise views on that. In any case, go ahead. What were we going to say, Jay? It's interesting you say that. One, one of my um, sort of um, bugbears is a lot of directors these days, even some of my, my favorite ones, they seem to have challenges with expressing a realistic depiction of joy. 
and and you know things are so dark now things are, and that and that's great you know that you're exposing a lot of injustices in the world but there there's still you know, you know, contrasting is always really good, and so yeah, I just, I, I just, you know, some great films are, are just so dark, and but sometimes, you know, you, you know, you need if you're going to draw, do something dark, you need something like you know, bright to sort of contrast it and stuff. So, so yeah, so I think joy is a is a um is a, is, a, is a, there's a power to that that um a lot of directors could could do more with it. Yeah, no, I I agree completely, and uh, as a matter of fact. To, to uh, get back to the subject of uh, Jay's movie and my story, which as the class knows was first published in Analog Magazine, the then editor of Analog Magazine, Stanley Schmidt, used to always say that, he, not that he wanted a story with a happy ending, but he wanted a story in which the protagonist at least had a fighting chance to get on top of it. And as a matter of fact, as I told the class uh, on Tuesday, and I don't know if Jay and I ever discussed this, in my very first draft of the chronology protection case, which I sent to Stan Schmidt, uh, it was about 5,000 words, so it was a short story. It wasn't even a novelette. I had Phil dying. Uh, and you see that in the uh, movie when Phil goes over the uh, uh, bridge or whatever it is on the side of that uh, big embankment and drowns in the water and Stan writes back to me and says, look, I, I really enjoyed the story. You know, I think you have a great character. Why are you killing him? So yeah, you never kill off the protagonist. Yeah, I know. But uh, I was young and impressionable and uh, I, you know, didn't know that much back then, but I, go yeah. ahead. You don't director's cut your first, you know, great character, you know, <laughs> director's cut. Everyone ever, everyone always dies and saw it darker. And so, Yeah. <laughs> No, that, that's a very good point. So, uh, so that's probably one of the reasons that Jay and I are on the same wavelength. Uh, we both appreciate not just you know bland, saccharine, happy endings, but but at least some joy in the world. In contrast to what you do see, I think, in a lot of uh, both stories that you read and things you see on the screen. By the way, if any of you have any questions, you don't need to wait until the end. You can just put up a yellow hand. And Jay or I will answer the question. Anyway, where I left this with the class was I told the class how I came up with the idea for the chronology protection case. It came from Stephen Hawking and his chronology protection conjecture, uh, which uh, you know is a real scientific theory. You know, not really provable because we, no one has tried to time travel yet, as far as we know. But, uh, you know, you can't get any better than Hawking as far as a serious, hard, scientific theorist. Hard being not difficult to understand, but rather hard being sticking to the laws of physics and quantum mechanics and what we know. Uh, so that's how I got the idea. Analog published the story in uh, in. Uh, 1995, September 1995. Uh, it, it, it got some uh, good reviews. As I told you, it was nominated for a Nebula Award, didn't win. Uh, was reprinted a, a couple of times. And then one day, now actually, Jay, I can't remember whether you called me or I received something in the mail from you, but why don't I turn the story over to you now? And okay. you tell us <laughs> how you 
came to know this story, what attracted you to it, what you didn't like about it, etc. Yeah, well, I've always been a fan of, of short stories because they usually convey, you know, amazing ideas without having to go through like 600 pages. And so, you know, I'm a, I, I was a, a, a young filmmaker and, you know, I've made a bunch of like short films, silly films. And I, re I, I realized that, you know, I really should make an actual narrative, something that like has a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, but I really wanted the story to be good. So I definitely couldn't write it myself at the, at the moment. And so, so I would want like, you know, really good story. And so, you know, reading all these like wonderful short stories and, and I, you know, came across um, Paul's story. Um, this amazing story was sort of mind blowing. And, and you know, it, it, it had these themes that I really enjoyed. One of my favorite themes is to have ordinary people converting a situation that's completely extraordinary. Something that sort of bends the entire reality of, of how they perceive things to be. And not only that, how they deal with that. Um, basically, the, the, the competence of them trying to sort of um, wrap their head around the new reality and try and fix something or find a solution. And to me, that's, that's you know, a, a big theme that I've always looked for in stories. And, and I just, yeah, I just loved, I love Paul Levinson's um, story. And, and the, uh, there were, I guess, <clears throat> there were four things about his story that really sort of uh, uh, struck me. The first one was what I just said, the ordinary versus extraordinary, you know, people confronting these mind expanding, you know, things. Um, the second is just, yeah, the competence, the fact that people are trying to um, figure out problems. They're, they're figuring out solutions to these problems. And that's something that really appealed to me. The other thing that, that, that was in the story that was that you don't see in a lot of stories was it was sort of a, a very bold thing he sort of flipped the idea of scientific pursuit as always good and one of the great things about science is it criticizes itself and and you know you've all i assume right now read the story seen the film and i i, I can't spoil anything i, I assume <laughs> yeah so basically the story ends with with abandoning the scientific pursuit of knowledge for the greater good and it shows a, a different priority than a lot of other science fiction stories science criticizing itself it's another positive quality of, of what i think the scientific method is and, and so um uh, yeah, and the final thing was it was filmable. <laughs> Something where like it was one person meeting a bunch of other people. There wasn't a a, a car chase. There was, I mean, there was a car crash, but you know, filming it inside the car and doing a bunch of um, green screen visual effects. That was sort of fun to learn how to do. Every time I, you know, from then on, every time I've made a film, I put in something I don't know how to do, and so that was my first attempt at at you know at doing something, some sort of you know, visual effects sort of thing. And so, yeah. And so basically it was a lot of talking, a lot of philosophy, a lot of dialogue. It's something I actually film with a micro budget or hardly any budget. And um, yeah, it, it, it explored everything about what I wanted to do to, to make a film. So yeah, so I made it and it was great. It was just, I got a bunch of friends together. We had the greatest time. People have the most amazing times on, on, on film sets, you know, cause it's just so fun because you're creating this new reality and it's like this amazing group effort. And so, um, I, I decided after I made it, you know, I showed it to a bunch of friends. We had some, some parties and showed it and like, well, I should probably send this to Paul, you know, so I can get sued or <laughs> something like that. And so I sent him the tape. I, 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 I sent, you know, at that, everything was on a tape. Everything's like, you know, filmed and, and sort of analog video, which actually I think in, in some ways is superior to like the later digital video um, because of the, the, the fact that you convert, you can, when you convert it digitally, it's actually, you, you just you get this richness to it but anyway so i sent it to him saying hey look i made this film from your your uh 
uh, amazing story. I have no plans to market it or make money off of it. Obviously, it's your story. Um, but, you know, if you want to sue me, here's all the evidence. And what I did is I just threw myself, you know, at his mercy. And, you know, anything could have happened. And what happened is he read it. He called me back and said, hey, yeah, this is pretty. I, I, so I like this. Let's see what we can do with it. And and then from then on, a lot of really sort, sort of cool things happened, which involved, you know, awards and festivals and conventions and stuff. And, and you know, and so. So, yeah. So that was the, the general the, the general story. And, you know, then I've known um, Paul now for about 20 years. And, you know, and then we just things have, have, have changed. We, we got on Amazon Prime or, or Amazon. Now it's on Amazon Prime. And and just we cha we made changes to it. We changed the ending. Um, you know, did a little 10 years later thing, which was really sort of fun to film 10 years later. But uh, anyway, that's a general um, you know, reason I used Paul's Paul's story. Yeah, let me say the one thing that I disagreed with uh, when Jay called me, I liked everything he said, except when he said, I have no plans to market it. But yeah, it's like totally alien to my philosophy. I think you yeah. should market the hell out of anything that you create, especially if some guy calling from California. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, that, right. You know, but, but that should be actually a good lesson to to you, uh, the students, uh, because you know I, I think that there is, and I don't know how it arose, but uh, there is, you know, to some extent, like a pervasive sense of that that people should have modesty about their creations. And I'm not saying people should be arrogant about them, but if you're modest to the point where you don't even want to market it, I remember we were talking the other day uh, about you know the, this little voice in your head that says to you, hey, this is really a terrible piece of work. Don't do anything more of it. Uh, I always think it's best to ignore that and try to do something more of it. Uh, let me ask you just one other uh, question just for the sake of the official record, whatever exactly that might be. Mm -hmm. um, and, and let me know if I'm right or wrong about this. For some reason, I have the impression that you first actually laid eyes on the story in Jack Dan's Nebula Award volume, or did you see the story someplace else? I, I can't, wow, it's been so long ago. I can't remember whether it was in, you know, one of that was, it was in, um, one the, 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 um, the best sci-fi of the year or, 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 or um, yeah, the, it could have been like those, those short stories that by, um, was the Hartnell or, or the, Hartnell, yeah, I forget, yeah, 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 Hartwell, yeah. Right. yeah. So that's, that's one of my favorite series by, um, you know, Hartwell, but it might've been in there. It might, I, you know, I, I also wore the, read the Nebula award-winning story. So it might've been there as well. I actually can't remember it. In fact, it's so long ago that when I decided to read it again, I couldn't find the story. So I went, I, I had to look, it up and like okay it's no oh, the mammoth book of time travel well let me let me get that book and and then i read it there and so it was interesting yeah it's interesting to see to read that story again for so i haven't read it for so long but uh, yeah i can't remember exactly what it is but it was one of those anthologies which is great that where they use like the best of the best and they they take the thousands of short stories written and just you know and and some editor reads all of them and then just compiles it into sort of like you know a nice uh, you know like what they believe to be the best stories of that year were wasn't and that's how i think that's how i read it yeah and, and the uh the the truth of the matter is and this is i think one of the most wonderful things about creating anything and it almost sounds like a cliche but that's because it's so true whenever you create something and as long as you put it out there into the world 
you know, so here I am on Cape Cod, I'm looking out of Cape Cod Bay, so I'm thinking about water. So, I mean, imagine like, you know, a message in a bottle that you throw off a ship, you know, the, it just goes out there. You never know where it's going to land. You never know who's going to read it. If it's a movie, who's going to see it? And, and the key point of demarcation is getting it not only from out of your head onto a screen, onto a piece of paper, but getting that screen or piece of paper into the hands of somebody who can push it out into the world so it no longer even has a, a direct connection to you. In other words, you're listed as the author, but that work is out there. And, and so, you know, Jay's coming upon this it was like totally unpredictable to me. Uh, you know, how could it be? But it, it was all, uh, a really profound vindication of what I already thought. And I, you know, and this gets back to something I also talk a lot about. And uh, we haven't talked that much about it here in this class and probably we'll get a chance to talk about it later on. But, uh, you know, apropos of Amazon Prime, one of the things that Amazon did in 2007 is introduce the Kindle, which originally was designed and it was created to make it easier for people to obtain and read things. Because in other words, rather than going out to a bookstore, rather than Amazon having to ship a book to you through the mail, the best that'll happen is it'll get there overnight. What Jeff Bezos was thinking of in the build-up to the Kindle up until 2007 is you, you, you can basically get it instantly. And so it, it, in a way, what uh, Amazon also did is they have made it much easier for authors to get their works out there, put, that, put them out into that sea, and who knows where the tides will carry them. And so for, for all of you who have yet to publish anything, and I know some of you are working on writing your own material, you should always keep that in the back of your mind. It's, it's never been easier, really, to get your work out there. And, and before the Kindle, there are all these tragic stories of great works which never got out there. And, you know, I always cite Thomas Gray's poem from the middle of the 1700s, uh, elegy in a country churchyard, many a gem was born to blush unseen. Uh, that's really, uh, you know, something that's very profound because why is it born to blush unseen in that poem? Because they're in the dark, unfathomed caves of oceans where no one can see them. And then, and then the poem goes on, many uh, a flower uh, wastes its sweetness on the desert air. And uh, that, that's a, uh, a profound thing, you know, beautiful flower blooms, but there's no one in a barren desert to see it or, or smell its perfume. And so in, in a sense, it's wasted. And so Jay, I was lucky that Jay found my story. Uh, I was lucky that Stan Schmidt decided to publish it in the first place. But the good news for everyone now is you don't even need uh, someone to publish it in the first place. You can publish it yourself. Um, Jay, Jay, tell us a little bit, though. You know, I, obviously, I'm immensely gratified, and I still am, that you had such high views of the story. But as the class now knows, having seen the movie and read the story, Jay did not just translate every single word of every single character 
from the story to the movie that he made. And right there and then you have the profound difference, you know, from page to screen. It rarely is, if it ever is, exactly the same. J.K. Rawlings, by the way, uh, is someone who felt so strongly that she wanted her words exactly as she wrote them to be in the movie that she really uh, ran a very, very tight ship in, in terms literally of her contract with the people who made the movie and the fact that she was in effect the producer. Peter Jackson, on the other hand, with Lord of the Rings, he didn't have to worry about Tolkien's uh, liking it or not, because Tolkien was no longer with us by the time that Peter Jackson did his story. So, you, Jay, you read the story, you loved it. What happened next? Yeah, it was. It's it, yeah. So I did. I did read it, and uh, I, you know, I do want to say that yes, there are some parts in the film that are complete, you know, uh, copyings of, <laughs> of of what you've actually written. So there are blocks of dialogue like that. But but what's interesting. Uh, you know, converting a short story to a screenplay. What I found out is there are, there are three things that sort of that that, that are important when, and things you realize when you actually take a story which has the internal narrative and turn it into an audiovisual medium which conveys information a lot quicker and a lot sort of you know at you really quickly. First of all, the flow of time is different. It's really uh, for a, a story that, uh, that you read and, and a film that you see and. Um, it's interesting. It's sort of it, uh, the best analogy is sort of Einstein's, you know, relativistic view of time, where where time moves differently for different people. Um, in a short story, um, sometimes things in the novel go too quick, um, and the, and the film conversion sometimes you have to pad things to seem realistic. Um, an example is uh, at the very beginning when Lauren had uh, uh, Lauren Goldring had to convince Phil D'Amato to take her case. Um, in the book, it's basically. You know, it, it, the dialogue's really quick. Uh, oh, uh, this isn't my department. Nobody need help. Yeah, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and so what I realized is that when I was when I was writing this down, that seems really, really quick. In the book, it works perfectly because it's a short story. But in the film, I realized that that you know there has to be some sort of motiv motivation, a greater urgency. So. So the, I actually sort of extended the dialogue out. I said, well, no, no, this is not my department. No, really, I made it sort of an argument where Lauren had to finally desperately say, like, you know, you know, I'm a physicist. My, my, my husband is a physicist, too. And that sort of, like, convinced him to, uh, convinced Phil D'Amato to take the case. And so um, sometimes things are going to be spread out. At the same time, sometimes things are going to be compressed. When you read a story um, you know, later when Lauren Goldring, Lauren Goldring's being interviewed, um, there's a description of things like the plush chair, the, the plush chair that Phil D'Amato sits in, the red eyes or the allergy. Those are things that that you don't have to extend. You just have to just show them. And so there's some things that go long, some things that go short. And so the flow of time, it's 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 very different. And so just always being aware of that, always being aware of what works and what seems to to, to you know what seems to actually you know be first of all, motivationally consistent and also just, just, um, you know, work with the flow of the story. That's something that, that you, you first of all, write down film and then re-edit. Uh, what's great about making a film is you sort of do it three times. You write it, you write the screenplay, you direct it, and then you edit it. And at that time you sort of, you know, get to, 
you know, compress things or expand things and sort of make the flow, flow better. But that's something you got to be aware of when you ever convert a story, an actual novel or short story, novelette, novella to an actual film. That's the first, that's, that's the, um, the first thing. Um, the second thing, which I think is even more important, more interesting is that especially in mysteries, things where you don't want, where you want to convey suspense, you don't want people to understand what's going on. Information sometimes needs to be postponed for suspense or surprise. Now, now, the, the mental work of reading versus the audiovisual info dumps it, it, it's, it's very different. When you read something, sometimes I read things and I have to sort of read a passage again to sort of get all the images. With films, it's just an audiovisual dump. It's just right in your head. You don't really have to think that much to to um, to see a film um, more more than you have to than if you're actually reading. Um, you know, in film information, it feeds two senses: your 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 eyes, your ears. And they sort of reinforce each other. It's sort of like getting two examples of a math problem. Like, you know, solve it this way and you can also solve it this way. And then you really, really know how to solve it. And so basically, you, um, you know, for, for, for reading, you have to do more, for, you have to do more analysis and, and mental work, things like that. So, and sometimes information gets, con gets, um, gets conveyed too easily where in a film, if you've got the exact same information, you immediately figure it out. And an example is, is, um, um, there's a a place in the book where um, Lauren Goldring's being, being you know interviewed and Phil D'Amato um, talks about JFK, like the paradox of JFK. Like, well, if you if you kill him, things will be different. Um, and I realized that when I was reading this, and I actually wrote the wrote the dialogue in the screenplay, and I read the screenplay, like, oh, people are going to figure out, yeah, the universe is killing people. I can't have that like you know in the first ten minutes of the story. I have to put it later. So we put actually later with Jack Donovan, the the um the the, the news guy. Um, he was the one that actually you know did the, the, the dialogue. And Edmund Hunt, my friend, who's this amazing person, and he improvised a lot of it, a lot of it. I wrote the dialogue, and it sort of just riffed on on the fact that there's a plane crash, and then and then you stop the plane crash, but then but then you know. Uh, you know, you, you were never there to stop the plane crash, you know, that sort of paradox. The paradox came later um, because the fact that, that I, I need people to sort of figure out, um, I, I need people to sort of take more time to figure out what was going on because in the very, if you convey too much information in the beginning, um, it, um, by just translating the, the novel over or the story over, um, you'll find that it's just, it, it's too easy to figure out what's happening, especially if you're doing a mystery, especially if you're having suspense. If you want people um, to not figure out anything until the very, very end or actually figure it out themselves. So that's a, that's a big thing. And then um, the other thing is internal dialogue has to be sort of conveyed differently. Filming thoughts, they've always been a, a, a challenge. Um, you know, in this, in this um, novelette, Phil talks to himself a lot. And okay, well, how am I going to put that in the screen now? So I did, you know, one of the ways I cheated was had Phil have a, a recorder talk to, you know, to talk to, to say all his thoughts. And so that was, you know, during the, the, car, the climactic end of act two with a car crash, you know, he, he's thinking all these things in his head in the story. And then there's a car crash and well, I can't have him just say stuff out loud. It'd be sort of weird. So I realized, oh, well, he's a, he was a coroner. He probably records a bunch of things. So that's why I had the, the sort of the, the, the um, recording device, um, throughout the entire film and actually worked, that was actually, I think, a pretty good solution about what's what's happening. Um, examples of, of, of doing it a different way, uh, David Lynch's Dune. I don't know if you ever saw that film many, many years ago, The Spice. 
the spice yeah, yeah, where, where everything, there's this weird thing about if you want to have, have a, someone thinking for some reason you need rever reverb in post-production that says, oh, this is, this is a person's thoughts. And so in so much in Dune, there were just people like just thinking and, and, you know, you just, you just heard their thoughts. And it was a cool idea, but, but it was just, you know, not many people have done that. And it's be because that might not have worked as well as trying different other, other different ways to convey sort of internal dialogue. So um, yeah, and 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 uh, like the the heart attack scene uh, when Phil when Phil later uh, you know realizes that that you know none of the scientists will speak to him at all, and in the story there's just there's simply um, a, 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 a simply a very a, a quick line saying that you know maybe maybe he should publish something and that's it, and. Uh, you know, well, he can't think it out loud in the film. So, well, I'm going to have an action. He's actually going to go to a computer. He's going to actually start writing to who it may concern. Um, you know, I have this 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 really big issue that's going on. And so actually conveying that from the internal dialogue to actually an action, that's a big thing. I think that would actually helps to convey internal dialogue. And so, so yeah, so, uh, you know, and then getting that heart attack. Uh, so, um, yeah, those are the th three things I sort of, you know, see that uh, there are things that that, you're going to sort of find out when you convert a, a, a story to a film. And so, yeah, so if anyone has any questions, <laughs> those are the big three yeah, things. Yeah. No, that's very good. We'll get to questions in a second. I just wanted to point out, by the way, you, you, you said early on in, in this uh, response that in effect, you see the movie that you make three times and uh, you, you will be happy or not to know that this is Aristotle's advice to teachers goes all the way back to Aristotle, who says, when you're trying to teach someone or convey something, and obviously there were no movies back then, but Aristotle was aware of the Odyssey and the Iliad, and there were certainly, you know, fictions of various sorts back then. And Aristotle said, well, you have to do it three times. First, you tell the person what you're going to teach them. Then you teach them. And then you tell them what you just taught them. And that's the most effective way. There's something almost magical about the number three. So it's interesting that that Jay, as a filmmaker, uh, is using that same approach vis-a-vis -vis his film. Um, and I, I think that Jay really touched on an essential point because no matter how faithful, and I'd be interested too that we can't get J.K. Rollins here, we can ask her this question, but maybe mm -hmm. he's discussed it somewhere. Uh, you know, what Jay has just said about a character thinking, which is easy enough to do when you're writing. So in other words, basically, I'm writing Phil D'Amato. I could have him talking to someone, a colleague, a secretary, whatever, a potential uh, villain, which he does in other cases. Or I can have him thinking about things, which uh, is actually very easy to do. And, you know, Phil is one of these people who thinks all the time. Uh, you know, he's on a train or a you know, a plane or going somewhere. Not only is there a scene in which we see what Phil might see out of the train window, but we have Phil's stream of thoughts. And as Jay points out, that in itself makes it a necessity that the movie is, hap is going to have to be different than the, the page that the screen is going to have to be different because there's no way you can show that internal thinking. So I think Jay came out with a, came up with an ingenious idea talking into this. Uh, everything in the movie is sort of low key, right? So it's like the worst 
recording device I've ever seen in my life. I, I don't know what it is, like a mini cassette or something the poor guy is using. Why? Uh, what he, He's the coroner in, in Santa Cruz. For some reason, they cheap out on uh, Phil D'Amato in terms of the equipment they give him to do his job. And so he's struggling with this little device. But th that I thought was a good solution to the problem. L let's shift slightly to something else, which I'm very interested in. Uh, also, and this is another way in which you changed a little bit of the story. And this is what led actually, at least in my head, to want to do the new extended ending. Uh, in both the story and the film, we have Phil and Lauren being attracted to each other. Not She's not just someone he's helping in a case. He's feeling something towards her. He's consoling her. It's more than consoling. She's feeling something about him. By the way, just so you know, the class knows I've been criticized over the years for that, that why do you have to have your detective always fall in love uh, you know, with women that he's dealing with? Well, he doesn't always fall in love, but sometimes he falls in love. Later, he gets married to one of the people in a completely different story and novel, uh, uh, a woman by the name of Jenna, and, and then he doesn't quite fall in love that often with other people. But anyway, so so Lauren is the first major female character in in both the the short story and the the movie. But of course, there's another character at the end, Jennifer Fenwick, right? Who you know is also a scientist. She, as you know, and again, they're going to be spoilers here because I'm assuming you've all read the story and seen the movie. She's the last surviving scientists were working on the project. So she's Phil's last hope. And a significant difference, though, and I like, uh, uh, I, I keep thinking Jay is Phil because I'm seeing like Phil D'Amato from the movie on the screen, but I have to keep thinking he's Jay, he's Jay, not Phil. In, in Jay's movie, near the end, both in the original and then, of course, it's extended, and I'll tell you about that in a few minutes in the extended ending, not only do... Uh, Phil and Jennifer have this incredibly profound discussion in which it's all laid out, you know, the pros and cons, what are they going to do about this? But, but Jay has them falling in love at the end of that uh, scene where I don't think, I mean, maybe there's a slight implication in my story, but I, I try to refrain from, you know, having like a romantic ending because I thought it would be too schmaltzy or something, but maybe Jay can speak to why he thought it, that would, <clears throat> was the way to go. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I really, Paul's, Paul's a, a metaphor of two particles, you know, any particle, any particles going away and coming together um, as an analogy to the, the, the romance. That was, I always thought was a really cool, cool, um, <laughs> you know, statement that actually put in the, the 10 years later scene. But yes, what I did is that, um, you know, again, we're talking about internal dialogue and, and, you know, if there's some sort of like romantic attraction that was, that was in the novel was conveyed very subtly. And I realized, well, we need to convey it a little bit better. So what I wrote at the very end and actually films was a scene where, where they would you know, say, great, we're going to protect each other. It's wonderful. And they get a little closer. And then suddenly without warning, they sort of, they kiss each other and they sort of look back and like, what was that? That was like, ridiculous. And, and then they realized, wait a second, maybe, the universe is trying to put it together to sort of protect the secret. And then Jennifer says, shut up. That's ridiculous. You're an idiot. 
um, and that they get together anyway. Um, but so yeah, so I actually added something a little a little more direct. And and uh, and I think Paul, which I think you know, I think his choice to say say, say like, well, let's try something different, a little more more subtle, more more subtle. I thought it was actually a really good choice. Where you know, and and doing it ten years later is really, really cool. And so the fact that that Paul wrote some dial some um, dialogue later um, that actually would take place ten years later, where you know, as you see, the film just ends with them looking at each other, and then suddenly there's a cut to ten years later, and they actually are together, and and they're they're sort of like you know, and they have this sort of bickering romantic sort of sort of like more traditional sort of like you know 1940s dialogue going back and forth. And I think I like that a lot better than sort of that than just the kiss. That seemed just that uh, on. You know, hindsight, it seemed like yeah, it was just a little bit too, too, too quick and too, too silly. And so, um, yeah. So, so basically, you know, ch changing it that way, that was the, I think that was a much better way of, of conveying the two particles, you know, leaving coming together like you know, romant romantically, which is so actually what what Phil actually, you know, says to Jennifer at the end to annihilate each other, which is sort of how a lot of relationships sometimes <laughs> sometimes work. The the you know the, the the give and take of relationships. So yeah, so that worked out really well. Let me say by the way, one thing I uh, uh, I'm a little aggravated about, but you know, not that aggravated, not inconsolably aggravated, was I wanted to make that ending the the new extended ending as realistic as possible. So I stuck in there that that hey, you know, uh, if we if if we get on the Chris Matthews show and talk about this, blah 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 blah, that hey, is cool. Well, you know, Chris Matthews, you know, and uh, as some of you may know, Chris Matthews was pretty much forced to resign a little over a year ago uh, because he had um, made more than one woman feel uncomfortable. You know, not that he assaulted her, but he said like stupid things like why, you know, someone who is a guest on his show, why aren't I falling in love with you? And, you know, that kind of thing might work in a story, but it, but it certainly is not an appropriate thing for, you know, a news anchor to say to, to a guest. But so I wasn't happy about that for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons was uh, so now basically th that makes our story and uh, Jay's movie, not only a sort of time travel science fiction uh, movie, but if we think that we're watching it and it's taking place in the present in that last 10 minute uh, scene, that's an alternate universe. Or it's like earlier than February 2020 or whenever it was that poor Chris Matthews uh, had to leave. Yeah, or it's 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 a yeah. Well, that, that thing it, it took place in like you know 2010. I actually sort of like the fact that you know this this was in 2000 to 2003 where we where we made this, and you see things like uh, like that you know when you have to transfer someone. Oh, someone's online. Let me transfer over, and you said that sort of quick extended bit of like of of Helen um, secretary basically pressing a whole bunch of buttons and then be having to hold down the line and then and transferring that and and so uh, you know that there are things that that. You know, can be sort of retro, but but I realize that that I think actually works as sort of a time capsule, and and um, you know, and then then later when when um, Jennifer is talking about yeah, with Twitter now you can you can do anything today, and then you guys are probably you know thinking well duh yeah that's been around for for a long time, but this was filmed in like you know in 2010 2011 or uh, 2012 where Twitter just would start they just started coming out and, and being able to to tweet something that could be seen by millions of people that's something that that's um 
you know, was just a new, it was a new thing at that, at that time. And so, yeah, it, it's interesting what Paul's talking about how, how, yeah, things don't age well in the, the this me to age. It's, it's sort of a, a good thing, maybe, you know, not to, to bet on the white guy <laughs> anymore because things are changing and times are changing, which is a, a good thing. And, and um, there's a, you know, a lot more justice and that that's happening and, and a lot more awareness is, is happening this past few years. And so, yeah, so this story has, it is sort of a time capsule of, about that idea uh, of, 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 you know, things like that. And so, so, so yeah, so it's, to me, it's not something, it's not something that's, that's modern. It's something that, that takes, took place 20 years ago and then took place 10 years ago. And so, you know, so, so I think that, you know, just the dialogue, like, like everything sort of, sort of works in terms of that particular time and time frame in that time capsule. All right. I have a few more questions uh, for Jim. I'm going to ask him one more question. So, and this will give you uh, a chance both to listen to the great question and Jay's answer, but also think of any questions you might have. If you don't have any questions, don't worry. I have a lot, many more questions to ask Jay. So, but let me just ask Jay this question. And then after Jay's answer, if any of you have questions, by all means, just raise your hand and uh, Jay and or I will answer them. So, so here's the, 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 not the last question, but maybe the last question for this segment uh, of our interview. Um, you, you, the class, don't know this, but the original uh, 2002 version of the Chronology Protection Case movie was in color. And as you know, it was shorter. It didn't have that extended ending. And as you also now know, it ended with after Phil and Jennifer having this profound conversation, they just kiss each other. And, and that's pretty much the end of the uh, the movie, and then it was extended uh, to show what they were like 10 years later, which, by the way, Jay and I both thought was incredibly cool because Jay and Jennifer, the human beings, uh, uh, Phil and uh, who is the actress? Uh, I'm Kate, Kate McGrew. Kate McGrew, right. I was probably say, one of my oldest friends. I've known yeah. her. Yeah, thirty-five years. Yeah, like all all the people in the film, like like Evan, you know, Michelle Franco, are all really good friends. They're they're people I've known for for decades. And and yeah, because when you make films, you get your friends, and and then you get them for later stuff as well. And so yeah, so just Kate's Kate's doing great, <laughs> and she and her dog are doing well. But that yeah, that's Kate McGrew. Yeah. She she was she was a she acted a lot. She she was an actress, the stage actress. Mm -hmm. Well, and you can see, by the way, that you and Kate knew each other prior to making this movie, because that's why as later your wife or even in that conversation where you're, you're meeting for the first time in, in that little coffee shop. But you you right away feel a connection to each other. And I, I, I thought you and uh, Kate brought that across for, for Jane Jennifer very well. And obviously it's because you already as human beings, actor and actress did have that connection. It's interesting you'd say that because Kate and I, what we've done for decades is go to coffee shops and have conversations about philosophy and the world and that, that lasted for hours and hours and hours. So, so yeah. And we've always, we just, we've had a really good connection with each other. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad that that showed in the film that, okay, it looks like these two people actually know each other, you know? And so, so yeah, I'm glad that it actually showed, showed a little bit in the film. It did. But here's my question. What, yeah. so why, how did that color original turn into a black and white green? Okay. That's a good point. Many things um, 
that, that many things that are done decades ago become timeless. Art Deco is great. You know, the, uh, um, other things like huge shoulder pads in the 80s aren't so great. They don't become timeless and they sort of, they, they sort of match you to that sort of decade. Well, um, I did this film, you know, since it was 2000, I, I um, filmed it on high eight video, not even digital video, high eight analog videotape. And, and so it was that the colors were very sort of, you know, faded and video that the frame rate was 30 frames a second. And, and so what this, what this film originally screamed out was video and video psychologically is considered a, a, a lesser medium, a, a, you know, like a soap opera or something like that. And so when we, you know, when the film started becoming you know, people started getting interested, interested in it. Paul started to get interested in it. I realized that, well, if I'm going to show this to like a bunch of people, I want to, I want to change it. I want to make this something, make it a little bit more timeless. And so what I did, what I re realized that, uh, as a as test is I, let's see what happens if I just convert it to black and white, because, you know, some of the greatest films in the world, Citizen Kane, they've all been black and white films. And, and, you know, you can take color out of something. And what happens when you take the color out of something is you start to focus on, on the basics, on, on more fundamentals, the, the eyes of a person's face, you know, the, 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 the direction of a story. And so converting to black and white, and then also doing some things like taking the, the, um, the, the three, four ratio and make it more of an HD sort of film ratio, as you can see right now on these screens, it's interesting. Like, like, the, what we're right, what the Zoom call right now that we're doing, if every, if you look at the squares that everyone is in, they're not three fourths, they're not TV squares like old TV squares. They're like this. They're they're um, HD. Even though the meeting we're using, which is a person's face, would probably look better um, on on a shorter a, a, a shorter screen. We could actually fit more people, um, you know, in a shorter screen. But it's not HD. Is is what everyone everyone does now, and it's, so it's actually like this. And so so. Yeah. So even Zoom does it. Even Zoom knows there's a psychological thing about having an, an HD screen of this ratio. I think like 17 to nine or something like that. Um, 17 to 10. I forget the exact the exact formula. But um, yeah, so basically I convert to that. I mean, black and white. And then the final thing I did is I actually took the frame rate down from 30 down to about 20 frames a second and uh, to sort of make it look like it was filmed, you know, with an actual old 16 millimeter, uh, 16 millimeter camera. And uh, it's interesting, I did just a, a by note, um, a long time ago, um, John Dykstra, who did the visual effects for Star Wars, um, this is when there was no digital, this was still, everything was on film, 35 millimeter film. John Dykstra, he had a, a great idea. He was gonna, he was going to advance film. So it wasn't going to be 20, 24 frames a second um, uh, and, um, you know, 35 millimeter anymore. It's, he's going to come out with this new format. It's basically 70 millimeters and 60 frames a second. So it was going to be twice as many frames a second. And it was 70 millimeter. And he made a few short films and he projected it on this big screen, with this big expensive camera, you know, really expensive film. And everyone looked at it and they said, that looks like video. That looks cheap. It looks like it's, it's you know, you're filming a, a, a multi-camera sitcom or something like that even though there was about eight times as much information that was being shown and displayed in the screen, um, there's a psychological thing. People look at 24 frames a second as some sort of um, issue with quality. Even right, right now uh, in you know, your iPhones, you, you can display something at a high frame rate as you want. You get 120 frames a second, but for some reason, 24 frames a second is this sort of 
psychological thing that people associate with film and associate with things that are more expensive and associate with quality. And so I converted to 24 frames. And as soon as I did that, all the video cheesiness that went that was sort of inherent in this sort of this this you know high video sort of went away and it looks like even though the resolution is really low um the the the, the sort of the analog black and whites and the, the 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 slower frame rate to me that sort of conveyed more of a timelessness it, it actually it, it it disguised the exact years where this film was made it's like well this could have been made in like you know in the 70s it could have been made in the the 80s we you know we don't know when this film was made and so so it's just interesting how how you know peter jackson lord of the, the lord of the rings and the, on the hobbit he tried to to film the hobbit on 60 frames a second and and the theaters were like no thanks we want 24 frames a second it just looks too much like video and so it, it, it even even today um there you know a lot of these directors are trying to do that trying to convey more information just doesn't work for some reason 24 frames a second is is going to be around for, for for a while until maybe you guys change it <laughs> you know but but it's been tried every few decades like someone tries it and like the public goes, no, no, it's not, it's not, not that. So anyways, that's what it is. So I converted it to, to that sort of like black and white HD, uh, you know, letterbox, um, you know, the 20, 20, 24 frames a second uh, um, sort of format. And yeah, I just think it, it looks a lot better. I, I wish I did. I, I, there, there is on YouTube some clips of the old video, 30, 30 frames a second um, tape video. And it just, it, it, you're you're focusing so much on the video. You're so focusing on like, oh, this is just like something I filmed this with a, a high video and it, and it takes away from the story. And so from then on, all my films, the, the, you know, the next three or four films, you know, that I actually filmed in videotape and digital video had been converted to black and white and, and sort of letterbox. Now I actually have a Blackmagic digital, <laughs> a, a, you know, pocket cinema camera. And so I actually don't need to do that anymore. That's filming 24 frames, 24 frames a second. But yeah, because the fact that these films are decades old, yeah, that having to do that conversion was, was uh, something that was very, it's very interesting I had to do it. And, and uh, yeah, so I think it, it actually helped the film when I did it, even though it took away a whole bunch of information. Um, it just, it, it just seemed, you know, the pe people's expressions seemed to pop out more. And so, yeah, so that was a, that my story and my conversion. All right, good. Well, so a couple of quick things. One, you know, you were mentioning you know, the difference between it looks like video, it looks like mm -hmm. film for a while. I think it was like back in the 1980s, maybe into the 1990s. And I, I'm not sure if any of the students have seen this. But for some reason in England, they, they adopted uh, this almost like protocol of the indoor films are, are the indoor parts of the action are shot in video and the outdoor shot in film so uh in fact monty python the famous you know you know group of comedians they actually made fun of this where th they start off indoors and you know and then they walk outside and suddenly it's a different format so we say oh my god it's film we're in film <laughs> now but uh, but that's how I, I, you you wonder what was going on in those British heads because it clearly looked very different. Yeah, well, that's yeah, but because you know when you get to a studio set, what's great about filming something on a set is there's no wind, there's no people, there's no crowd noise and stuff like that. And, and the trouble is, you know, so you have this really nice set, but um, you know, so you can control everything. But in that time, the cameras were so huge, you had you had to sort of like roll them around on on the, you know these huge tripods, and they 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 were like little refrigerators. <laughs> 
you know, pointing at people. And, and so, so, you know, but they were actually a lot more, con- lot more controllable and, and they were also cheaper um, than, than film. Film cost money. You're actually burning, you know, you know celluloid and, and, and the chemicals and stuff like that. So, so being able to do something with, with a video is actually cheaper, but yes, once you go outside, they couldn't take these huge refrigerator cameras outside. So they had to use the, the, um, usually 16 millimeter um, film cameras. And, and so, yeah, if, if you watch, I don't know if you watch the old, you know, doc, Doctor Who, Tom Baker era shows where every time you're outside, it's it's like, wow, this the film's, the cinematography is pretty good. And the inside, like, oh, it looks like a soap opera again. And, and, and you know, and yeah, a lot of like old 70s or 80s um, um, sitcoms, you know, Brit- especially, yeah, British sitcoms, they just, that's just, yeah, it's what they did is because of, the, of what, what they, what they were able to, you know, they were just saving money. And interesting, you know, we were talking about British British TV. Um, we, British TV came out after American TV, and they sort of improved everything. Like American TV was like like four hundred lines of re- resolution, and British TV was almost like five hundred lines of re- resolution. So even the, the video was actually is, is is a little bit clearer. Have you ever? Yeah, you know, I remember going to England and looking at the TVs and like, why is everything just a little more clearer than American television? So it was like that. But now there's like a standard for everything. You know, the the H the HD standard. And now there's like the the 4K standard. So that's sort of sort of gone away. But it just in the earlier decades, yeah, you had all these where people were sort of just like figuring things out. There was all these different formats and all the and all these different you know things with with film and video and they were just trying to you know piece things together and so yeah so that was one of the the, the funny things with like film and video which is goes back to why I I took my video I made, made it look like film even though that got rid of a lot of information because I just knew that that was sort of a psych- psychological idea about better quality. But and the net result of that is uh, it, there's no doubt Jay and I were talking about this earlier that the uh the the revised movie uh with the extended ending probably looks at its best when it's on a phone because everything is compressed on a phone when it's yes. up on a bigger screen that's when it looks grainy uh one of the things i mentioned to jay when when the new version of the movie came out i put up a link to it on a goodreads time travel site and one of the moderators said oh my god what is this this is terrible everything looks so blurry so I said, hey, you know, get with it. Uh, I, I basically uh, gave him the lame answer. Well, the universe doesn't really want you to see what's going on in the movie. So, you know, get, get with answer. the story. Yeah. yeah like I that. meant to do that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Why so shaky? It wasn't because we didn't have any tripods because, you know, I wanted to convey the the nervousness and anxiety of the scene. Yeah. yeah. It, and so, yeah, you, you can, but, but um, yeah, it's funny because I just recently, you know, Oh no, I have to be interviewed. I better go watch my film again and read this story again. I watched my film again. I watched it on my phone and I'm looking at it. It's like, you know, the resolution isn't as bad as I, as I thought it was and realizing, Oh yeah, I'm watching it on a phone. I'm not projecting it on a big screen, you know, for, you know, a hundred people to see. And so, yeah. So, and people, watch a lot of things on the phones right now. And this is definitely the type of movie that, you know, as opposed to Lawrence of Arabia or, or you know, some, some big budget action flick, like this is, this is, um, <laughs> you know, it's something that, that you can definitely watch on the phone. It's funny. One of the reasons that, that um, uh, the American version of the office got so popular is because uh, because of the fact that it was one of the very first TV shows 
to that a lot of people were watching on their phones. And the 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 type of show it was, it wasn't any action scenes. It was basically just a bunch of people, a bunch of talking heads back and forth. Um, it worked really well on the phone. And so it's, it was a type of show that people could see on their phones. And so and so it, it was because of that. That's one of the, one of the other reasons that other than such a, a very good show, uh, you know, pretty good show. Um, the American Opera sort of grew in popularity because of that. It was the one of the first shows that actually, you know, that, that millions of people would just watching the phones instead or you know while they're like doing the dishes or something like that and they would just have a little a little laptop there um you know and watch it there and sort of work that way so it's interesting how a lot of our screens now are getting smaller you know we didn't have the, we don't have the big cinema scope especially in the past year and a half obviously um but yeah but but people are, are watching things on tvs they're watching things on phones or laptops and stuff and so and at the same time ironically um you know the 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 resolution of film keeps going up like right now we're at 8k you have 8k tvs 8k films and that which is basically the limitation of what your eyes can see you can't really there's no reason to go any more than 8k because your eyes actually can't perceive anything more than that but yeah just interesting how like people are watching things on smaller devices and even though the resolution is getting higher and higher so yeah, that, that, yeah, that's a very good point. And by the way, that's a classic example of what Marshall McLuhan was talking about when he said the medium is the message, because you have the exact same movie, and, and it's a very different experience seeing it on a big screen in a theater, which that happened very few times. I think the original technology protection case, we screened it at a couple of science fiction conventions and it was up on a pretty big screen, but that was before Jay converted it to more grainy black and white. But it's a very different experience seeing it that way, seeing it on a television screen, seeing it on a laptop and seeing it on your phone. And even though it's the same exact thing that you're seeing. But uh, you know, we don't have, we have about another half hour left and there are other things I want Jay to talk about, such as what he's working on now, some new things. But I do want to give all of you a chance to ask Jay questions and or me questions about this. So do any questions? <laughs> they take they take a few minutes. There you go. Nemo. Okay. So I had a oh. couple, but I think I'll start I'll start mm -hmm. with one. Um my first question was it kind of pertains to both of you, I guess, because like one evokes the character and one created the character, right? Um but it was interesting to me that our main character was put at like the central plot of this, you know, like impossible physics scheme. And he was just a hobbyist in physics. Like obviously he had studied it and he had general knowledge and maybe a little bit more than general knowledge, but he wasn't a physicist. He was a forensic scientist. And then the other, the, I, I don't want to, I, I hate that this is an unfortunate thing to, but like that both of the, the damsels in distress, right. They were both accomplished physicists in their respective fields and yet they were kind of coming to you know this forensic scientist who was a hobbyist for advice and like guidance and you know he basically like he wanted to help lauren out and she was like explaining to him and he was like understanding it and then uh, presumably she figured it out before she passed away right but he was still kind of like on the fence about it and then with jennifer even like he's instructing her at the cafe which is probably why I don't remember the conversation as profound as it should have been, because it felt like he was just telling her what to do rather than like them arriving at the conclusions to together. And it just didn't, that particular aspect just, I was just wondering how you guys worked that dynamic in where like, 
I mean, the poor. Yes. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I totally understand what you're saying. You're right. And what you're bringing to light, which is what has happened in the past few years, is how things are changing and, how, and what priorities were. And, and you were bringing in the idea that, that yes, there, the, even though there were a lot of women in the, in the, in the story and in the film, um, what we um, are often guilty of as men <laughs> is basically putting ourselves in as the protagonists, putting ourselves as the, in the, as the most important people and not realizing that, that maybe there could be something different. Some, we, could, we, could, we could have a different way of, of, of showing something, of, of putting maybe someone else in, in, in the center. And, and uh, yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right. It, it, you're talking about things that are timeless, you know, the basically the, the, the you know, transferring of, of the, the, you know, Lauren, of uh, 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 Helen transferring the, the phone call and stuff like that. Another thing that, that, that um, actually is dated um, as well is, is the ideas and, and the stereotypes and, and, and of uh, basically the ideas of, of the roles of men and the roles of women in, in this, in this, um, in this film and, and in my film and, and, you know, in the story and, you know, in the past few years, it, it's, which has been a great thing is we're starting to see that we're starting to see what the mistakes were. I'm starting to see what, what how things can be changed and, and it's great. And, and, and looking back at my earlier film and looking, looking back at, at things like this, I realized that, that, you know, how many of these films passed the Bechdel test? You know, are you familiar with the Bechdel test? Uh, 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 yeah. And how, how, you know, after this film, I actually made a, a, a vow to say, okay, every one of my films are going to, is going to pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> you know, it, it's going to be, it's going to be like, like there's going to be at least two women in talking about something that is not a man. And so, um, yeah, and we, we, we learn and we, and we change. And one of the biggest ways, biggest ways to change is to have people who are not men, not white males actually make media. Um, there, this, um, Jolie Soloway, uh, who did transparent, um, uh, uh, they came out with a, um, um, a manifesto. I'm sort of paraphrasing it, like you know, really a really amazing thing that would sort of make a lot of changes would be is that for the, for the next 50 years, no media, songs, no TV shows, no stories um, would be written by men or white men. It would all it would be basically every everyone else, and there would be a 50 year moratorium on on anything written by by, by men. And all, even though that's probably not going to happen. It would actually work. That would actually change everything, and and um, that would actually you know change the whole idea about who who could who could write stories. And so, um, so yeah. So so Nima, what you're saying it, it is true that that what we're what we're seeing in these films, especially a film that's like that a story that's 20 years old and a film that's 10 years old, is we are seeing the the the, the limitations and 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 the, and the issues that we had with um what we what we thought was um was a uh, important what we thought who the important characters were uh, I, I, it's interesting I, I just saw i know if you ever saw here's a ever see stealth this really sort of slightly crappy movie about a, a in a a fighter jet that goes ai and and um it, it's interesting i just saw it's, it came out like 10 years ago or something like that um but the most dynamic character is jamie fox and and who is you know a, a black person and 
And um, he dies, <laughs> like, you know, a third of the way through the film to show how awful this, this AI was, was. And the main, the main character was this sort of a generic white guy. Um, I forget what his name was, but, but it, it's, it's just, and you realize like, wait a second, why did Jimmy Fox die? Oh yeah, this film's 10 years old. And they have this priority about who's supposed to be the lead, the stereotypes about who is supposed to be the, the, the main character. And for such a long time, the main character was white and male. And, and, and if you're going to spend a hundred million dollars making a big action film, the producers are going to say, no, we need someone who was white and male at the, at, um, as the, the main, as the main character. And what's great is it's starting to change and people like you're asking these questions and, and, and not accepting them. And so, so yes, everything you're saying is, is, is correct. And, and, and even though the underlying themes of, of people figuring out, figuring out you know what's going on and you know dealing with mind-bending realities and 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 trying to figure out what's going on even those themes are, are, are the same perhaps the people um you know trying to figure out those, those solutions um need to be different and does that answer the question a little bit or, or is that i think well, that was one, yeah <laughs> let me just well go ahead uh, Nima. why don't you mm -hmm. respond and i have a response to what jay said no i was just going to say Mostly that was the preface to my question, which was I was going to ask if it were to be remade or like rewritten now or if it were to be adapted in a modern because I remember Professor Levinson, you said in last in our last class that you wanted to do eventually an, a, a, um, a stage adaptation. Right. Um, and it just got me thinking, like, would we have the same roles assigned to the same genders or like have the same tropes assigned in our modern society? So you absolutely brought up some of that Mr. Kessinger but I, that's that was my main question so like that was mostly like my I'm sorry if it sounded like critique but like mostly my observation of the gender roles was me asking if that would change or if that's something that's central to the story well those, there, are, good, those are good yeah those yeah. are good questions let, let me just respond and I, I'd be interested in what Jay has to say I mean I agree with everything Jay said but I just want to make a couple of other points the reason that Phil is sort of in the driver's seat in the story, both in the story and the movie, and this is in response to what Nemo first said, Phil is not a physicist. He's a forensic scientist. He's therefore an expert in death and what causes death. And that's really the whole motive of the story. Why are these scientists dying? So, so Laura contacts him because her husband has died and she's beginning to figure out what's going on and as soon as she figures out what's really happening she dies then the other scientists one by one begin dying and then it's just down to jennifer in that last desperate conversation between uh phil and jennifer phil is prodding jennifer to come up with a way of dealing with this because phil is an expert in death has at least figured out that insofar as he's able to understand what's going on, they're both going to die because they know too much and this vindictive universe is going to kill them. So I, I think that, uh, that that really at least was my answer as, you know, why did I set up a situation in which you have two highly intelligent women physicists and the guy who's just a forensic detective seems to be instructing them. He's not instructing them in physics. He's instructing them in life and death matters. Of course, that's totally fictitious. My guess is there's no forensic detective on the face of the earth who would understand, you know, what Phil is supposed to be able to understand. 
The second point, though, I would make, and this is an interesting question, and I honestly don't know what the answer is to it. Uh, th there's an old, and again, it's a cliche because it's probably very true, that it's advice that's given to writers, and I would give this to you as writers, write about what you know best. So if you're a white guy and you're writing a story, obviously you know that aspect best because you've seen the world through that. And um, my two best-known novels, one is The Silk Code, which is a Phil D'Amato novel. The other is The Plot to Save Socrates, in which I deliberately made the protagonist a woman, Sierra Waters, who's a graduate student in 2042. And I really had to work hard at making her believable because I don't see the world the way a, you know, a woman sees the world. And, you know, for all I know, I didn't do a good job. I mean, before I showed it to my editor, the late David Hartwell, my wife and daughter read it, and I asked them to be honest with me. And they told me a couple of things where, no, listen, she's taking a misstep here. And so I tried to correct that. But, but it's not an easy thing to do. And I wouldn't want to go so far as to say, hey, um, if you're a white guy, don't ever make a black guy a protagonist because you won't know what he is feeling or don't ever write about a woman. I think it's good for people to try to stretch uh, beyond. But I think that you, the important thing of what Nemo and Jay are saying is you, you have to try not to take the easy way out. And final answer to Nemo here. Yes, I would like to make this into a play. Who knows? Maybe I'll ask Jay to help me. I don't know. We'll see. But the uh, the there's no doubt that if I were to write a play, I want to put this on some stage in 2022-2023, it would have to be slightly to somewhat different in various uh, in various ways. Uh, by the way, let me just say one last point. In the original story, I don't know if you remember, the police officer who, who basically comes to Laura's place after she's died is a woman. Jay made that a man because he had an old friend who was a police officer. That's a real police officer. He wanted to show him walking up there. And I thought that was a good move for the film. But it, it, uh, it was, And yeah, and I couldn't. I, you know, I was at UCSC. There were no female police officers. <laughs> so that's, that's the thing. That, that was something where I need a police officer. And yeah, well, okay. I, I have to have a police officer. So, so you know, yeah, yes. And, and that's exposed to the, the, the limitations in the real world that actually makes it more, more of a challenge to sort of, to sort of match some characters. Yeah. All right. So, Nemo, do we, do we answer your question pretty much? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Who else has a question? All right, Charlie. Yeah, um, I was just wondering, I mean, it, I think you directed uh, and produced and starred in uh, the movie. So um, I guess just like, what's that process like? Like directing yourself and other people at the same time and then also setting up camera shots and things like yes. that. Okay, sometimes it looks ridiculous. 
because you basically have your own camera and sometimes it was a one-man crew i would go out and i would i would actually set up the camera i would i would i would look at where i was and and film it say okay i'm right here and actually do a dialogue i would hit record go over and do do the dialogue and then and then come back and, and turn off the camera um but in in, ter in terms of uh, yeah so that so it's just logistically which is but probably if you're making a film, the most important thing is logistics, how you actually do something as opposed to strategy and, and, and you know, and composition and stuff like that, if you actually want to complete a film. But uh, yeah, in terms of the fact that, that doing all of it, I had to sort of get, I, I had to become three people. Um, one, of, one of my jokes is when I, when I make it, when I write, like say my own screenplay my, and, and I film it, I actually tell the crew, okay, look, the person who wrote this screenplay what an asshole he's actually on vacation now in bali and we don't even know where he is so what we're going to do is we're just going to take this crappy dialogue whatever he wrote and, and we're going to basically make our film and see how we can find some sort of interpretation from this we i actually sort of i i i think of myself the screenwriter as the director as two different people and and so and that actually seems to work because you actually find some insights that you know the screenplay i'm not talking about full story which is me i'm talking about my screenplay but but um but yeah and you find some insights of the screenplay oh okay that's interesting there's the screenwriter as we call him even though it's me the screenwriter um you know wrote this way oh so let's interpret it this way let's let's see how how let, let's film it this way let, let's direct it this way and so a lot the a lot of the the a really good way is to sort of like separate yourself consider yourself as two different people and same thing with like the acting okay so the director is going to give this information so now i'm the actor okay here are my motivations i have to get this person to do something and you go back to like the stanislav method, method of acting what's great is there are tools and there are you know there are books and there are there are, are, are um there's education for all these things for screenwriting and and directing and acting where actually you don't need a person actually telling you what to do at that moment you can actually go back to your own your own knowledge and so yeah so basically i got the when in, you know, as the director i said so you can go here you're going to do this you can go by this at the end of the scene you want this this needs to happen to this person. And then as the actor, I'd say, okay, that's my instruction. Now I'm going to interpret it as the actor. Okay, so, well, this person, I need to, uh, you know, what's the action verb for this? So I, I need to, to impress, cajole, you know, what, what action verb do I use? And you score your lines, you, you, you every, every beat, and you sort, of, you sort of do it that way, and, and you sort of ignore what the director does. The same way the director ignores the actual persona of, of who the, this uh, screenplay is. So it's just, yeah, it's like there's three different people, only the three different people are all you. And so is that, is that a no cancer? Yeah, just, um, yeah, you make the separation. And, and sometimes it's good to just to sort of make fun of the other person. It, you know, yeah, this, this screenwriter is an asshole. Oh, the director doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Um, here's one of how, how I'm going to do it. And so by sort of becoming, you know, sort of sibling yourself and, and becoming like three different personalities, um, yeah, that seems to make things go a lot more efficiently. That, that was a great question and a great answer. I'll just throw in here. I think there's a connection between what, what Jay is talking about and what Charlie asked. And if you are a songwriter and then you go into a recording studio and you produce and sing or play on whatever it is that you wrote. Because in what Jay was saying, I've experienced the same thing in, in that context. 
So in other words, as a songwriter, I, I write a certain lyric, but when I go into the studio and, and actually sing it and there are other people playing instruments, I can sometimes feel, hey, you know, you, you, you love that lyric. That's why you put it in. But you know what? It, it, it worked when you were just singing it. But when you have a whole bunch of other people playing and, you know, the drummers coming in at this point and you want like a little piano flourish and some guitar licks, that lyric is actually getting in the way of your uh, production. So when I recorded my most recent album, Welcome Up, back in 2018, I actually changed lyrics when I was singing in the studio for that very reason. Sometimes I changed the lyric because I came up with a better lyric, a better word. Uh, like in one place, uh, I changed birds fly to crows fly because crow is just more descriptive. But birds and crows, they scan exactly the same. Other times I changed it because I could just see that the original lyrics were not going to quite work as, as well. The other thing I'll just mention is some of the greatest filmmakers in history did all that, namely like Charlie Chaplin. He, he, he wrote, he produced, uh, and uh, starred in his uh, movies. But it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Well, it's I'll just one of my favorite quotes in music ever is from Thurston Moore, who was um, in Sonic Youth. He said, "Once the music leaves your head, it's already compromised." So, it's you know, you have this song in your head; it's going to change. It's going to completely change by the, by yourself, by the people who who are playing it. And and uh, but yeah, so 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 rewriting like Michener, James Michener, who who was this this famous author, um, he said that he was a terrible writer, even though he's a amazing writer. But he's a terrible writer. But he was one. Of, he thought he was one of the world's greatest rewriters. And so, a lot of what you do with writing is is basically changing it and rewriting it, and 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 basically taking all your ideas and consolidating them. And and you know, and, and ninety percent of what you're going to think and what you're going to of your stories, ideas is going to be crap. It's that ten percent that you want to sort of, you know, that, that is gold, golden. That's the one you want to sort of like write down. So if you think that stereotype of that person in the, the coffee shop with the, the old 1940s Corona, tack, 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 typing the screenplay, um, I always thought that was, that was silly. That person shouldn't be writing it. That person, that person better be consolidating all the ideas that he wrote in his little notebook that he carries or that he, she carries with him for like, you know, around everywhere. And, and, you know, and then consolidate that into, into one, you know, into like, you know, some ideas that that's what he, he, he or she better be typing. So, so um yeah, so basically it's all about rewriting. It's all about, you know, you never, you don't know what you're going to get at the end. Um, but just, you know, make sure that, that you, that you have a lot of ideas and just keep doing it that way. As long as the coffee shop is Perks, it'll come yes. out okay. Perks, unfortunately, as so many things, unfortunately, is no more. Um, it, it, uh, yeah, it, it finally it finally closed down. Even pre-pandemic, a lot of things, you know, closed down. But uh, yeah, it, it was good to be able to to um, to sort of. Uh, um, you know, put put Pergs on on film, you know, and just so immortalize it because it, it's gone. It's yeah, it's it's not there anymore. Too bad because it was it was a pretty cool coffee shop. I mean, Jay's movie is so effective. You can smell the coffee in that last scene. I, you know, at least I can when the two of them are there. It always gets me in the mood for a cup of coffee. <laughs> it, 
it was really hard making it so that when people were drinking coffee and we're doing the dialogue to make sure that the, the levels of the coffee were the same, that, 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 that they were, you know, okay, you're taking a sip, but, you know, go, because you know, we've seen some films, you see like someone's drinking coffee and like, yeah, let me tell you something. And then it cuts back to, to the person and suddenly the, the, the coffee is higher. It's like all these different levels, all these things like continuity is, is really, really important um, in, in filmmaking. So that's why, that's why if you're drinking coffee, it's best to use um, a, a mug and not, like a, a transparent glass. So some and knowing Jay, in addition to being the screenwriter, the lead actor, the producer, the director, Jay, I think, was also his own continuity person in this uh, film. Yes, and it so shows well. in some. Oh, no, it's good. Good continuity. Hmm. All right, that was a go ahead, Jay. Yeah, yeah, yes. If you see some one scene, I realize, ah, uh, my my beard. Because well, there was one shot where where at the Donovan, like you know, and don't do anything about this story. And I realized, oh my God, my beard is like a lot short, shorter because I filmed this like two days. Two, I filmed this after I shaved, like three days after, because I forgot to put that in. And so things like that, yeah, yeah. And then if you get a continuity director that who you know, there's a person who's whose job is to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, it's just, it's just funny, even in, in, you know, hundred million dollar films, you see these, these things were like, Oh, this person's color is like this. And then the next scene that's down like this, it's like that. And so, yeah, like hair, that's why everyone's hair in film has just so much spray stuff on it. Like you, you don't want wavy hair because it's always going to be different. Like the, the, the latest film I, I did, I, I, um, Adrian, one of the characters, she had long hair, and then you just kept keep you kept having to realize, oh, done it. Okay, this last scene was your hair behind you, was in front of you, was one behind you, one back. We realized there was all these different scenes. We had to sort of match how her hair was when we actually went back and filmed some things. So, so yeah, so things like that. That's continuity. It's it's logistics. That's that's the the big hardest part of the film, I believe, even even more than strategy or, or direction. Jay, since we don't have that much time left, and we'll probably have time maybe for another question or two, but why don't you talk now, because you mentioned your latest film. Tell us what you're doing right okay. now. Um, it, it's uh, basically this film, it, it's, um, <laughs> the controlling idea is it's about two women who are taxed, tasked with stopping this this um, guy who's committing a series of catastrophes. It talks, it goes into multiple universes, and, and they're... Their, their um, plans are sort of complicated by the arrival of this young woman. It explores these issues of toxic masculinity and the, the use of words as weapons. And and um, the, the controlling idea is that um, enough smaller people can sort of like uh, rise up to defeat a greater, a greater evil. And the a, a more I think controversial idea is, is sometimes evil can't be reasoned with. Sometimes you actually just have to you know, beat it down. And so, yeah, so it's a film I've been working for the past year and a half and, and it's, um, yeah, I don't want to talk about too much. I want to talk about full stuff, but, um, but yeah, it, it, it was really fun to make and it's like my seventh film. What, one of the things that, that I'm really happy about is that I've planned, storyboarded, written seven films and I've completed seven films. And some of those films have gone on to result in Edgar nominations. Other films have, you know, been in film festivals, like, like you know, all, all over the place. Other films have just, went on into obscurity you know you just you never know what's going to happen but but i'm very happy that i've actually been able to, to make, whenever i make a film at you know a year or two later the film is done so that's actually 
I, I, I'm proud of my track record there. doesn't mean it's a great film, but it is a completed film. And so this last film I'm really happy about because I think, because, you know, I'm, I'm sort of putting together all the things I've learned from my, my previous six films. And so, yeah, this, it, it, if you go to modvec, M-O-D-V-E-C.com, and you'll just see sort of like, if you scroll down, I, I, I blog every few months, you know, what I've been doing and have pictures of all the crew, the dialogue. And, and yeah, people always have a, a really great time and just have scenes of the film. And there's actually some, some clips I've done. I've done with just about everything. I just need to add the, the final music. I have to write the music right now. There's a bunch of placeholder music by, you know, like, like a bunch of like, you know, famous, you know, a bunch of like, like turn of the century musicians like Lily Boulangeret and um, Satie and, and Debussy. And so I'm sort of just going to replace that with the, my, my actual music that, that I've written. And so, but yeah, that's the last, last part. And so it's, it's pretty much almost done. And so, yeah, so I've been working on that for the past year and a half and yeah. And my goal is just to keep making films and, and just keeping, keep improving them. And, and if you go to the, the website, one of the taglines of, of my, my, um, uh, you know that back of Modvec films uh, is a uh, uh, you know story character with occasional visual effects because I'm always going to be a sci-fi nerd. I'm always going to want to put like really cool sci-fi elements in. You know this latest film has a bunch of hollow screens and it was sort of fun putting that stuff up there and a bunch of like you know s sort of like you know like like beams and stuff and it was fun. It's always fun doing visual effects post-production stuff like that. But I'm always tr also trying to sort of convey like the story and convey like the characters and making sure there's a lot of of time rehearsing and 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 working on motivations and working on action verbs and and what the the dialogue should be. So yeah, it's just it's fun. Making films is really fun and I'll keep doing it and every film I make you know something happens to it or nothing happens to it and and uh, the main thing is just to to keep uh, keep enjoying it and and uh, yeah and just and just to try to keep improving this this craft and, and and you know adding things that you think will make things better well let me just say apropos the Edgar nomination just to uh, unpack that a little bit I think I may have mentioned this to the class on on Tuesday uh, the, the the life of the chronology protection case seems to go on and on. So basically, I write this story. Uh, it's nominated for a Nebula Award. It's a finalist, doesn't win. Reprinted in a bunch of places. Uh, Jay sees it, makes it into his movie, The Chronology Protection Case. That's shown at a couple of science fiction conventions. This is before even YouTube. And then someone, and you're going to like this as a class, who was a student of mine at Fordham University, who's now actually a professor. So you may or may not have taken a course with him, and I would recommend that you do if you have a chance to. His name is Mark Shanahan. He is actually an actor. He, he's a voice actor. He's just a full-fledged actor. And so he basically sees Jay's movie, reads my story, and says, you know what, I'm going to make a radio play from this, because he was into radio play then and he makes this radio play and i'll see th there's a version you can get of that play from audible i may have a free version of it somewhere i'll see if i can get that to you but th that's yet a third take because what what mark shanahan did is he he read my story saw jay's movie and then did something yet a tiny bit different and uh and and so and that uh, radio plays what was nominated for the Edgar Award, which is for the best mystery uh, radio play of that year. Again, nominated, but not winning. 
Um, but it was really cool being able to fly to New York to go to the Edgar Awards, you know, hosted yeah. by Jerry Orbach. And it was actually really cool. I sat at a table with a bunch of like other nominees and stuff. And so, yeah, it, it was a, a really, really cool thing. And I, I, I and at the very end, I want to say one final thing about something, but, but go ahead. You know, other stuff. No, no, go ahead. You, you okay, well, okay, I'll say right now. I, 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 I think it's sort of like a bookend to what I said at the beginning. The whole reason uh you're talking about the, the journey of the chronology protection case the the reason that this journey happened was because of paul's kindness because of the decisions he made at the very beginning when he got this movie of his of his of his story instead of saying hey this is my story you know what right do you have to make a movie about it this is i'm going to sue you something like that he de he decided well, let's see what we can do with this let, let this is kind of i like this let's see how far we can go with it and and, and um by doing that, and by just by again his criticism of me of being a little too modest about my stuff and not sending it out, that 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 shows evidence that he was he's right that and he sent it out there and he pushed it out to all these all these um places and uh, yeah and and as a result he, I, I get a call a few months later or whatever saying you know from Paul hey hey guess what <laughs> we got Edgar nominations for like for best play like what oh yes um, um, uh, Mark Allen turned it into a play and so he got Edgar nominations since he used obviously my stuff and your film uh, you know then we're all we all are included in that and so it's because of the fact that that you know that that um uh, you chose kindness uh, and you chose basically to, to uh, th that Paul sort of like decided to be generous and decide, well, let's see what we can do with this. This is, this is awesome. He, he found the awesome in it and, and not, and, and not the, the any bitterness or not any sort of like, like greed about, you know, what it was, what, what he thought might've been taken from him by some upstart young upstart at the time making this making this film and so and it's a lesson and and it goes back to, to kindness it goes back to to just giving people the benefit of the doubt giving people uh, the, you know general being generous and actually helping people and and when you do that when you you spread stuff out you you know who knows where it'll take you and so and with the chronology protection case it's it's taken us you know a lot of really really great places well, so, thank, thank you you're very welcome, Jay, and thank you for saying that. And I, I should mention my father was a lawyer, and one of the things I learned from my father is life isn't just about what rights you have in a legal sense. Uh, the, basically, life is about being, uh, you know, a decent person and understanding if, if something happens and you don't expect it to happen and it's, a, and it's a surprise, you don't just jump and say, hey, that's mine. You had no right to do that. No, you, you try to take it in and understand what was the intention of the person who did this? What was the result of what he did? And uh, my initial feeling as soon as I saw the first minute or two of this movie and this little boy, you know, running down the steps with that rinky-dink music is this was something uh, good and worthwhile. And, you know, here we are. It's uh, June 7th, 4.28 p.m. in the year 2021. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, literally 19 to 20 years after I first you know, saw what Jay did, and this is one of the 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 benefits of what Jay did, and the way Jay and I worked on this afterwards. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jay Kensinger. Listen, put this on your calendar. On July twenty seventh, I'll be interviewing Rufus Sewell. 
about the brilliant part he played in The Man in the High Castle on Amazon Prime. He played John Smith. So I'll be interviewing him on July 27th, and I'll get that up here as an episode on Light On, Light Through shortly after. And of course, between now and the end of July, I'll be doing plenty of other episodes about all kinds of interesting things. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sound, and enjoy. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson spilled code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries. 